according to Wem, they don't have to pay for that bridge. This week, the worst kept election secret is out. Amarjeet Sohi is running for mayor. Plus, we'll have updates on Vision Zero and the West Edmonton Mall pedestrian bridge. You know, the one they tore down three years ago. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 130, where it is Oilers playoff time. And normally I wouldn't know this information, but today when I was outside, I saw the long stream of honking cars. And these ones, judging by the Oilers flags, probably weren't about freeing Palestine. On to the rapid fire. The Oilers Entertainment Group is now recommending that Edmontonians record videos of themselves throwing cowboy hats when Connor McDavid scores three goals in playoff games and posts them to social media. According to a leaked government policy, the Minister of Rodeoic Affairs has tasked his $200,000 a year issues manager with counting the number of cowboy hats observed during games. And if it reaches a certain threshold, Oilers games will be legally classified as rodeos with in-person fans allowed. Alberta K-12 classrooms are returning to in-person learning next week after, during an inquiry-based learning session with his nephew, David Staples discovered that he's not qualified to teach math. For the second summer in a row, Edmonton police are planning on launching Project Tensor, a program which hands out tickets to drivers for speeding, noise, stunting, and other traffic violations in hotspot communities. Some have levied criticism at the EPS for doing arguably less than the bare minimum to address concerns core area residents have had for well over a decade, mentioning that the EPS probably doesn't deserve to be celebrated for finally enforcing existing laws that punish those who have made communities annoying and uncomfortable to live in. But a constable made available to the media disagreed. He said, quote, to be honest, you're pretty annoying yourself and you don't see me arresting you, do you? Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. And this episode is brought to you by Shift Podcast by Alberta Innovates. Shift showcases the work being done in the province's innovation ecosystem, everything from health to clean energy. Join hosts Katie Dean and John Hagen as they interview the researchers, entrepreneurs, and businesses that are shifting our perspective about innovation in the province. The latest episode is all about our new robotic overlords, featuring Craig Milne, CEO of Copperstone Technology, a company that offers robots as a service to mining companies. You can find Shift Podcast by Alberta Innovates on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And of course, you can always find it at shift.albertainnovates.ca. That's shift.albertainnovates.ca. So Mac, if wishing made dreams so, then uh, I guess Amarjeet Sohi would be running for mayor. And... By that own logic, I think it's true that anything we wish for will come to pass, if I say it loud enough on the podcast. I think there's a TikTok meme about this, and I'm not sure it's always true. But in this case, your wishes have been granted, Troy. So this week, the worst kept secret uh, in municipal politics that Amarjeet Sohi is running for mayor of Edmonton. It came out and he publicly announced it. Too much fanfare, media frenzy. Of course, we all knew this was happening after Andrew Knack declared that he wasn't running for mayor. That was pretty well the confirmation all of us needed. But, you know, it's good to finally enter the race. And now when polls include his name, it's a little less ridiculous. Yeah, there are 10 candidates now. So he enters a pretty busy race already. And we're only in May, so there could be more to come. But as you say, not a huge surprise that he decided to finally announce. And I, I kind of love that it just got drawn out. 
Like, I think the day before he announced, there was an article on CTV that said something like, he's going to make a big announcement. He wouldn't say exactly what it is, and it will involve <laughs> his family. But it's like, what do you think he's going to announce? Like, of course he's announcing he's running. Amarji Sohi announces that he's going to Superstore instead of Sabon <laughs> for his grocery trip. Like, yeah, there's only one announcement that it could have been. Right. It's interesting because... There was a part of me before he launched that was starting to get nervous. We had been hyping up So He's Launch. And, you know, there was a point in the back of my mind, I'm like, what if he launches and it's like a dud? It's sort of like, eh, it gets, you know, like 20 retweets. Yeah. But then we move on and then we have to really do this like fight with Mike Nickel and all of my dreams will be crushed. And no, that that didn't happen. Amarji Zoe made the news and he made giant waves. There was overwhelming mountains of support um it was very interesting there were some screenshots showing sohi and all the other candidates sohi's initial tweet several hours after being announced far dwarfed the cumulative engagement of basically all the other candidates so he's got the social media vote locked down potentially maybe not on facebook but you know, will that translate into the rest of the population, I guess, remains to be seen. But before we move off the tech part of it, the question I've been waiting to ask you all week is, do you like his website or has Michael Oshry got this in the bag? Uh, Michael Oshry's website is better. Michael Oshry, of course, has Berlin Communications doing uh, his work. And, you know, Berlin's a solid company. You may remember them from such hits as Prosperity Edmonton. They're very effective at getting the message across. Mm -hmm. I got to say, when I go to Sohi's website, as a software developer, I'm like a little bit frustrated. Like, it's nice. It does its job. No one else is going to care. But like, it's it's a WordPress site. You can tell that it's a WordPress site. When you refresh the page, you know, the layout sort of jumps around a little bit. It's, you know, it's it's fine. I don't think this is a competition of web development, but if it was, I think Michael Oshry would have it in the bag. I don't think it's a competition of web development either, but we are still in a pandemic and most responsible candidates at least have suspended door knocking. So virtual appearances are going to be important, I think. I do have to wonder how much candidates are truly leaning into the digital of it all, because if a candidate was truly saying we're not going to have our ground game as our primary motivation, or we're going to beef up our websites, you'd expect to see anything on any of the candidates' websites. But frankly, there's just nothing there. I mean, Sohi, if you look at his platform, I'm putting air quotes around platform. <laughs> yep. I mean, like, you know what Sohi's going to do. He's going to continue the work and he's going to be the anti-nickel. It's things like bringing back a growing economy that's good for business, leaving no one behind and protect the environment where investments meet green jobs. That's the extent of it. There's no additional details. And of course, I'm sure more will be released later. But like, that's not a thing that you go to and think, oh, this candidate has all of the bases covered. This is not an alternative for door knocking or canvassing. No, absolutely not. I think the the business language that he did talk about in this need for a what do you call it, a robust plan for recovery and economic growth is, I mean, table stakes in 2021 coming out of the pandemic. Obviously, the economic recovery is on everybody's mind. That's important. But I also felt like he made a point to talk about business a little bit because I don't know that that's something that he's typically been associated with. It's not like he's considered a champion for business in the same way that Oshry might have been or even to that, for, for that matter, you know, um, Cheryl Watson or Kim Cruschel. 
I think the other piece that I'll, I'd like to mention about Sohi is, and I believe it was Andrew Knack that tweeted this, when Sohi launched, candidates like Diana Steele and Cheryl Watson, they all jumped in and said, mm, congratulations on joining the race. And Sohi replied, you know, I'm very excited to be here. Let's have a good debate. It was all very respectful, very cordial, you know. And this is in sharp contrast to Mike Nickel, who we don't need to talk about the tweets that he made, but you know, he was leveraging Sohi's connection with Iveson and Trudeau as, oh, this guy's toxic. Let's take him down. It's really signaling how Mike Nichols' strategy isn't working. Like a lot of us feared, we we had feared Nichols' success because that would be very bad for mm-hmm. many Edmontonians. But the thing with populism and the thing with Trump, with Rob Ford, with Jason Kenney, is that you got to be popular, you got to be liked, and you got to have an opinion that's in the majority. And then you can really leverage wedge issues and rile up a base and get people out to the polls and see success. If you look at the electoral history of Edmonton, we don't elect angry conservative mayors. Iveson over everyone else, massive landslide. Mandel over any of his competition. Like you could argue like we had sort of like the Bill Smith days, but those are long since passed. And if you look at the actual vote breakdown, like those were never landslide victories that we have with the Ivisons or Mandels. So I think, and if social media is any indication, we're going to see a massive evaporation of the angry populist conservative rhetoric. And it's just, it's not going to be a successful campaign strategy. I don't see it working. And you already see it not working on Mike Nichols' own tweets, where he tries to do the populist meme, sort of like gutter politics. And it's just full of people saying, this is gross and you're not going to be mayor. I mean, I want to, I want to believe you're right. I hope you're right. But there's also you know, tweets saying, don't go over to Facebook and look at the comments there if you want to maintain your faith in humanity. Facebook is a much bigger social media platform. Everybody's on Facebook. If what we're seeing on Twitter is, you know, more uh, progressive and anti-nickel, it doesn't sound like that's necessarily the case on Facebook. So I'm a bit I'm a bit leery about your argument, I have to say. I, I think you're right to look at the electoral history and say Edmonton has been this orange dot in the sea of blues we've talked about before and that you know has translated generally to the types of mayors that we voted for but i guess there's sayings like first time for everything for a reason so hopefully that doesn't come to pass if i was to give nickel credit for being anything trailblazer would not be it (laughs) (laughs) fair enough speaking of trailblazing though um edmonton widely receives accolades for being a trailblazer for vision zero we adopted it earlier than most other Canadian cities. And we've got a report for five years of Vision Zero that came out this week. And we've been doing the podcast a few years, Max. So we've had at least three of these annual reports that have come out. That's right. And I think we say the same thing every year in that the reports say the same thing every year, which is nothing. Yeah, well, they they say something, but it really means nothing, right? That's kind of the way that it goes every year. So this is the annual report for 2020. Um, as you say, it's the fifth year since we adopted Vision Zero. The headline stats this year are that in those five years, fatalities on Edmonton streets have decreased by 63%. Serious injuries have decreased by 
and pedestrian fatalities and injuries have decreased by 54%. So those all sound like good improvements. Those sound like significant decreases over that five years. Um, the report also talks about investments in you know crosswalk upgrades and new signaling and school safety projects and all this kind of stuff. And it, of course, mentions the 40 kilometer per hour default speed limit that is going to come into effect in August this year. So I don't want to say that like nothing has happened, but this report has exactly one mention of COVID-19 for a report on the year 2020. And it talks about, you know, the significant decrease that happened in 2020 without, I feel, acknowledging that those decreases happened during a pandemic when people were just weren't driving as much. This feels like a long time ago now, but think back to last April where you'd go out at 7 p.m. and it literally felt like a ghost town. Like it was eerily quiet. There was no one anywhere. You could walk down the middle of the road and not see anyone for 15, 20 minutes at a time. You can't have a collision if you don't have two cars. Right. It's just, that's science. Sorry. Given the sharp decline, did we see a commensurate sharp decline in injuries and fatalities? Well, I think the reason the news release used percentages is because it sounds better. Because if you look at the actual numbers, in 2020, there were 12 fatal collisions, down from 14 just the year before. And there were 231 serious injury collisions, down from 268. Those don't sound like massive declines to me. And even then, I would argue that those constitute an increase in fatal and injury collisions. Because if our actual traffic counts are down and we still haven't reached the peaks of pre-COVID because people are still working from home, people are still not going out, not as much, people can't go to events, movie theaters are still closed, that sort of stuff. If all of this is in the massive decline and depression, I think like our collisions and injuries per kilometer traveled on our roadways probably is massively spiked. I think that's a very real possibility. There's one category they have in here on just not even looking at the injuries and stuff, but mobile speed enforcement, so violations, tickets. And they're they're highlighting that it's a 76% decrease from 2015. But it basically cut the 2019 number in half for 2020 because nobody was driving. So it's a very misleading statistic, I think, to look at the five years and say that there's been this this great decrease. And they have another chart in here where they show sort of a trend line. And very conveniently, it gets to zero at 2032, which is when they've decided we're going to hit vision zero, right? I mean, the numbers are going in the right direction. But, you know, every year, probably we say the same thing. They're not going fast enough. We're not actually making the kind of progress we need to make if we're serious about hitting zero. And a lot of it feels like, this is something we've complained about, but it feels like our wins on Vision Zero are things that happen almost by accident or by side effect. There's no better example than Saskatchewan Drive this winter. Because over the winter, that lane still remained closed because we're destroying and rebuilding Duggan Bridge. So that was closed to vehicles but also closed to pedestrians. They put up road barricades and they put up big signs to say, keep out of this for no reason other than because they can and maybe because they didn't want to clear some snow. Without ever reopening it to traffic, now it has reopened 
as a mobility lane for COVID distancing. If that's not the clearest example of how we're not really serious about finding ways to make it safe for everyone to use and finding ways to make it the most usable for everyone, like, I don't know what is a better example. And correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, but that's not a very expensive thing to do, right? It cost us money to close this to pedestrians because we kept the same pylons up and then just added additional road closed barricades to prevent pedestrians from entering it. Yeah. We paid money to prevent that street from being used this winter. It's baffling. Yeah. And of course, this comes as part of the selling of the new Vision Zero Street Lab, which is the new innovation from Vision Zero, which is basically exactly like that. Little pylons that can be deployed by community leagues and communities to make their communities and their streets safer and to do rapid interventions to help change the infrastructure in planning for having uh, bigger changes. But if we can't do it on Saskatchewan Drive, I don't know how we're going to see success on Vision Zero Street Labs. Like, is Vision Zero Street Labs going to be, well, you can have safe streets in June and July because we don't have to care about snow clearing. But once there's any effort required on the cities, we're going to tear this down. I don't know. I'm not confident, though. Yeah. The other thing about the Vision Zero Street Labs that, that I thought was really funny is the city of Edmonton tweeted this, and maybe it's just the social media folks, but it's like, way to go, Edmonton. Over 80 communities have told us they're interested in creating a Vision Zero Street Lab. <laughs> is that an indication that people love this idea, or is it an indication that Vision Zero is not doing nearly enough and there's still so much work to do that 80 communities still don't feel safe without taking action themselves? Way to go, restaurant. 80 people declared they got salmonella after eating there. So we're going to hire some new chefs. You missed the ball game there. That That's a negative stat. Yeah, I think so. You know, not to be completely negative, there were a couple positives. And like you mentioned off the top, new 40 kilometer hour speed limits are coming into effect early August. It's really real. It's really happening. One thing that's not coming up pretty quick is we've mentioned today that this podcast has been around you know, just about three years. We started it in August of 2018. And episode zero, the trailer episode, we got together in my room back when we can see each other and just shot a three minute ad on the mics. And the topic we chose that week was the topic at top of mind where Wem was creating a bridge to nowhere. They demolished their pedestrian bridge over 170th Street. And that still doesn't have a resolution but this week, we decided who might pay for a solution. Yeah. So as you said, this was torn down in uh, 2018. There was inspections done by the city and they felt that it was no longer structurally sound, but it was demolished by the mall. And uh, the development permit that the city gave them to demolish it said they had to replace it. They didn't. And later, they agreed that they would come up with some sort of cost sharing plan. And that's what we got some details on this week. And the idea now is that the city, West Edmonton Mall, and Alberta Health Services, which owns the land uh, immediately to the east, will all contribute to this, uh, no more than $2 million each. Um, and the city will essentially upfront the cost and, and pay for it. So it's going to cost something like $8 million, essentially, to replace this pedestrian bridge. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know if that's a good use of $8 million or not. Andrew Knack said that it's already pretty far along in terms of the design stage. So I guess none of us will get to say anything about how it looks. But uh, I suppose anything is better than the empty eyesore and inaccessible 
crossing that we've had since 2018. I'm very leery about this whole process. I mean, when I had talked to Andrew years ago about this, it's been going on forever. I was led to believe that it's not great that the mall is doing this, but because we're going to have a new LRT there, we can leverage some of this new construction work to make that new LRT better. And of course, it makes sense. You know, this bridge connects to the hospital. It connects to the community across 170th Street. And the WEM station is going to be a raised station. So you can imagine this bridge could connect to like a new skywalk thoroughfare that connects right to the LRT. That could all be cool and very good. I've seen no plans to that effect. And like you said, we have no idea what this is going to look like. And and actually, Andrew Neck now says that he hopes this is done ahead of the Valley Line construction, because that's going to be so disruptive that having this in place will, you know, at least allow people to continue to access the mall during the construction of the LRT. And part of it makes me wonder, is our system working? Because I can't look at this scenario where the city says, okay, this bridge is pretty critical. We're giving you a permit to demolish it, but you have to rebuild the bridge. And then Wem says, okay. And then they demolish the bridge. And then they go to the SDAB and say, this development permit is unfair. The SDAB rules. Yeah, okay. We agree with you, Wem. You don't have to rebuild the bridge. And the city is left stuck with the bill for a bridge that ostensibly benefits the mall in every way. Like it allows people to access the mall. But now the city is left basically providing corporate subsidies to rebuild this bridge. None of it smells right to me. Yeah. And council still has to vote on this, of course. So it's going to come back in June well, when they talk about the uh, spring budget adjustments and it'll be a package for consideration um, during the supplemental capital budget. And I mean, what are they going to do? Vote no? Yeah. And not have a bridge? WEM seems perfectly fine to not build this bridge. Yeah. And, and this was a bridge that served the community and that has caused challenges, I think, for residents ever since it was torn down. You know, there's accessibility issues and things like that. I think the city wants to have a bridge there. Uh, it's unfortunate that they're going to have to pay for it when that wasn't the plan originally. We'll have to wait and see. Administration says preliminary designs are done on this bridge. I would hope that the public gets to see these designs or hopefully designs that are more than preliminary before council votes on this because it reminds me of the high level bridge when we installed the suicide barriers that significantly shrunk the usable space. Mm -hmm. And we talked with Scott McKean about this before. Council's justification for what happened is, you know, they wanted to get this done fast. They wanted to get this done quick. Perhaps these could have been flagged better, but, you know, they'll do better in the future. If we don't get to see the bridge before council is voting on exactly what they're going to do about this, I don't know that the public can help flag potential issues because, you know, this is a pretty critical bridge. It affects multiple communities. It affects the hospital. There's a lot of consultation and there's a lot of different layers of community that should give feedback on this bridge. I think this pretty opaque and obtuse process for three years isn't really getting it done. Agreed. One place the city is engaging with residents is another rezoning for Windsor Park and Westmount. And normally we don't talk about every rezoning and upzoning on this podcast, but you added this in and I saw that, you know, Windsor Park was having some 
problems with density and residents complaining about another upzoning in their neighborhood. And I thought we should talk about it because, boy, do I not care what those residents say. <laughs> well, there was two that caught my eye. So there's this tower in Windsor Park, 87th Avenue and 118th Street. And what's interesting about it is that this rezoning seeks to increase its height for the third time. So this location, this specific site has already been upzoned a couple of times. And so the community feels like this is a bait and switch by the developer. The majority of the concerns, if you look through the public engagement stuff, was all about this idea that, you know, hey, we, we, we felt like we already gave you feedback on this and now you're trying to make it taller again for the third time, which is an argument I can kind of understand. But administration is basically saying, well, Maybe, but this is very closely aligned with the goals of city plan. And they've made some improvements to the proposal. They've made some modifications. They actually scaled it back from the height they wanted to have. Um, but we need this increase in density if we're going to get anywhere close to uh, achieving the goals of, of city plan. You know, I can empathize with some of the, the residents' concerns there of, you know, bait and switch and continual upzoning. Except Windsor Park... There are literally two types of buildings in Windsor Park. There is old, massive houses that you stack undergrads and grad students paying $450 a month for a closet as high as you can get, you know, 15 <laughs> grad students per house. That's one type of house. The other type of house is, you know, the massive overlooking the river $2 million homes that has two people living in it plus the butler. Yeah. Those are the only two types of buildings. Plus, there is one four-story development right by Lister Hall and the BMO. And directly adjacent to that is a big empty pit where we're talking about building this building. There's just like no negative community effects other than people living there and, you know, traffic and parking. And we all know how little I care about residents' parking <laughs> concerns. <laughs> I mean, it's an 11-story building. The application says, or administration says, that they've transitioned more sensitively to its surroundings, which is interesting given that their surroundings are so flat as you say but you know it doesn't seem out of place for its location 87th avenue 118th street and that's the same as the other one that caught my eye which is over in westmount on 124th street this is a main street this one too is seeking to be up zoned and this would come not actually so much from a height but in terms of like the mass of the building and making it bigger so they can fit more dwellings inside there and again the argument is that you know, this this is a in support of city plan. We need to have 50% of all these units be created at infill locations. If you're on a major roadway like 124th Street, a main street, this is an appropriate amount of density. Do you ever feel like if every report that comes through says this is in support of city plan, it sort of mutes the impact of saying something is in support of city plan? Absolutely. I mean, every every report you read now in the public hearing agenda basically says some variation of that. And it does feel like it waters it down. It's kind of like the public engagement thing. Like, you know, they've improved that to some extent, but so many reports, you know, would, would just kind of give lip service to that. And that's almost what it feels like. It's good that City Plan is front and center and that that is the um, topic that we are kind of hanging all of these other things off of. Uh, and we know that, you know, really we need to get the zoning bylaw renewal done in order for some really material changes in this kind of stuff to happen to support city plan. But it does feel like it loses a little bit of its significance when literally every report on the agenda is in support of city plan. I mean, I guess that would be the point, you know, if administration is putting forward reports that says, 
this goes against the goals of city plan, council would probably rightly say, well, why? Yeah, we, we approved this document. But yeah, you know, the the idea that city plan is this slam dunk because it supports city plan. That means we must approve this. You know, we just shouldn't be proposing anything that's in contravention of city plan. Exactly. So it, it, it's yeah. sort of like, shouldn't we be assuming this at this point? Shouldn't yeah. we be talking about the merits rather than just like, eh, this is in support of city plan. And we, as you say, we shouldn't just approve it because it's aligned with city plan. Everything should be aligned with city plan. Yeah. And, you know, there can be absolutely buildings that increase density that are trash. And there can also be, you know, buildings that are exceptions to the rules. They're, you know, maybe low density developments, but they really enhance the vibrancy of the community, in which case maybe we should still support that because there are other goals and end outcomes of city plan other than just density. It's not yeah. be all end all. That's right. But this is the be all end all of this episode, except for an ad. This episode is brought to you by the Well Endowed podcast by the Edmonton Community Foundation. Hosted by Andrew Paul and Elizabeth Bonkink and produced by Lisa Pruden, the podcast explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. The ECF helps people create endowment funds. The podcast tells the stories of how those endowments intersect with the community. Episode 95 features a conversation with Christine Archibald, Executive Director of the River Valley Alliance, all about the gem of the North Saskatchewan River Valley. You can uh, subscribe at thewellendowedpodcast.com and you can find it wherever podcasts are freely downloaded. Or sold. I mean, Spotify is is in the game of selling podcasts Apple now. Apple so. too now. Yeah, yeah. We won't be selling you this podcast. All we're going to sell you is our hot takes in Max's case, informed, and in my case, bloviating. And that's our guarantee that every week you can get those. And of course, hit that subscribe button on speakingmunicipally.taprootedmonton.ca or wherever your podcasts are found. And of course, you can always head to taprootedmonton.ca or edmonton.taproot.news to keep up with everything that we've been up to. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.